I'm the executive director for Denver Arts and Venues. Boy, are we thrilled to have people show up today for this very important conversation. Um, our agency, in partnership with the Office of Human Rights and Community Partnerships, is hosting this event today. Um, our mayor, Michael Hancock, can't be here, but we're going to introduce someone else who will introduce the author in just a moment. Um, we are so pleased to have Jennifer Harvey with us, um, a Denver local person who now lives in Des Moines. Um, you'll be hearing from her shortly. In fact, her sister is here, and I think her mother is here, and maybe half of you are her family. I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, she's, she's local. We like that. Um, her book, Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Kids in a Racially Unjust America, the title alone tells you how important this topic is, and I, I don't know if all of you have had a chance to look at the book or, or read it, but it raises some really key, key topics. I will say I wish this book had been written when, when our sons were in their 30s, had been little, because I think it could have helped me. Um, not too late, I'll say, as a parent of adults, but um, still, what, what an important topic and conversation for us all to be having. Um, thank, thanks to all of you for showing up. This is a big crowd for um, early on a Monday morning. I think I'll just, uh, through a show of hands, figure out who we've got in the audience today besides family members. That's not a category we're going to list. Um, parents and, or grandparents, if you fit that. Uh, I figured we'd have a lot of hands going up there. Um, teachers or educators in K-12. Excellent, excellent. College educators. Terrific. Someone who works with children in some capacity, if it's not in education. Wow. All right. How about representatives from nonprofits who deal in this zone as well? Wow. Arts organizations or people who serve on them. Wow. All right. And how about people who are committed to furthering the conversation around diversity, equity, inclusiveness? Okay, all right. <laughs> and just for the hell of it, members of her family. <laughs> okay, all right. A few uh, who are willing to raise their hands. Um, anyway, again, we're, we're, we're really happy to be hosting um, this event here in our building. Topic, Raising White Kids, Anti-Racism, A Conversation for All, and it really is. Um, let's see. So our country is becoming one of the most diverse in the world, and I think we should continue to celebrate that and be happy about that. Um, but fostering understanding about how we deal with that is, is really a complicated topic. And it's a topic for all of us, so thank you again for showing up. Um, raising white kids, healthy and open-minded white kids who aren't racist is, is something you have to think about and, and work on. It is not an easy topic. 
Um, but it's crucial that we have an open and just and, and congenial society. So again, thank you so much for being here today. I think this conversation will end up benefiting all of us, and I hope for, for the people who weren't able to attend, you're able to share some of your thoughts and, and learnings from this morning's session. Um, without saying anything more, um, well, no, one thing, our agency, Arts and Venues, we, we're part of the city, obviously, but this is one of our key initiatives for the year. It was one of our key initiatives last year, and it's, it's run by Tariana Navas-Nieves, who's just a superstar as far as I'm concerned. Tariana, stand up. Humble hand raise, anyway. She's, she's really, really done a lot for us and continues to believe in and work very hard on this topic. Um, now I'd like to have come up here on, on the podium um, Derek Akubo, my friend and colleague. He's the executive director for the Denver Office of Human Rights and Community Partnerships. He's standing in for Mayor Hancock today. Derek. By the way, Derek just returned last night um, from an international trip, so he's, I'm apologizing in advance if he doesn't know his name or, or some other important fact. <laughs> Thank you, Kent. Good morning. Yes, uh, I did return last night from the uh, inaugural flight uh, celebration to Paris, France. And uh, when I ran into one of my colleagues in the lobby, this morning, she said, oh, I'm heading over, and I thought, and I said, I thought that was tonight, you know, so I am uh, catching up, but thank you, Tatiana, thank you, Kent. Tatiana, as a community member for uh, Denver, is also the chair of the Denver Latino Commission, and so she's very active, not only professionally, but as a resident of our community, so thank you for your service. Um, Again, thank you for all of your attendance here today, and thank you for those who are tuning in on our live broadcast for this event. This is a part of Denver Talks, and this collective conversation started last fall. It was Rowena Alegria right here. Give a wave, Ro. Uh, she is... Uh, our communications uh, lead and also a special advisor to the mayor. But one of the things that in our office, I always challenge staff to say, wouldn't it be cool if, you know, and answer the question. Well, she came to me one day and said, wouldn't it be cool if we started a, a conversation community-wide on the issue of race and justice? And from that, she, and after that, she came to us with a book uh, she came to me with a book called uh, Citizen, an American Lyric by Claudia Rankin. And she said, wouldn't it be cool if we brought in Claudia and we had these conversations? Well, through the course of a lot of serendipitous activity, we ended up partnering with Lighthouse Writers Workshop, uh, with Arts and Venues, with Metro State University, among others. And we ended up having 66 unique and individual conversations all around the community on the topic and using the uh, book Citizen as the tool to have those conversations. We also had two events, uh, large events, one at Metro State University, which probably drew around 600 uh, students, and then another one at Betcher Hall, Concert Hall, that 
brought in about 2,000 people, a conversation with Claudia and the mayor uh, on the topic of race. So the events were ex extremely successful. Well, what happened too was after those uh, conversations occurred, people came to us and they said, what's next? Sure, we had this great conversation, but then we need to move this forward. What are the things that we are going to, going to continue to do? And this event here tonight, or this morning, tonight, <laughs> this morning, it is tonight in Europe, I think, but, uh, but uh, um, Tatiana, through her leadership and through Kent's uh, support, uh, we are, this is the first step in our second wave as far as Denver Talks and what is next. So now I, I got to go back to the script here, and I forgot my reading glasses. But uh, so, f but the city of Denver, as you saw, you know, on City Hall at, our, at the city and county building, we had the big banner that said, "Denver loves immigrants." No, hearts immigrants. Through the course of a variety of activities, and among them the Public Safety Enforcement Priorities Ordinance, which limits the city's involvement in federal immigration enforcement to the city's International Advisory Council, to our efforts to ensure the city's spaces are accessible for everyone, Mayor Michael B. Hancock has demonstrated the unwavering commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and through his leadership is, is trying to change that culture and create a culture of inclusion. So today we're so excited to have Jennifer Harvey and her family here uh, to uh, give us practical strategies for modeling anti-racist behaviors to children and her strategies, of course, can benefit not only us as individuals, our families, our siblings, but our community at large. Book Bar is here in the back. They have books that are for sale, and Jennifer will sign those later. Very good. Thank you for the prop. So let's give uh, Jennifer a good, a, a strong, mile-high Colorado welcome home. Let me introduce Jennifer Harvey to the stage. Thank you for that warm introduction. Good morning, Denver. Good morning. I'm so happy to be back in Denver, and I just want to thank so much uh, Denver Arts and Venues and the Office of Human Rights and Community Partnerships for the invitation. Um, I speak lots of places, and this last week is the first time I've been invited to speak speak in Denver, where I'm from. So it's been really an honor and a privilege to be here. And yes, I have two members of my family here, but you need to know my family is large. <laughs> I'm the oldest of seven, so this is barely my family right here. <laughs> but it's my mom and my sister, so I'm glad you're here. Um, and I want to really name and appreciate the hard work of Brooke Dilling and Tariana Navas-Nieves um, for, for pulling these pieces together. Um, what a great morning. So we're going to dive right in. And what I want to do is um, share some stories this morning that I think start to map some difficult terrain um, when it has to do with race that I believe deeply we have to begin to get our footing on as a society if we want a different racial future than the present we're living in right now. And I would assume anyone here this morning um, wants a different future than the one we're living right now. Um, 
So the first story I want to share begins like this. This is an actual story a mother and a teacher in Des Moines Public Schools shared with me. And she said, I was so relieved when my second grader came home after her school's Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. I'd worried about what she'd be taught, like I figured they might sugarcoat things. But when she came home, she was so excited about everything she'd learned, and her school had done a great job. But then, after sharing all she'd learned, my daughter turned to me and said, you know what, Mom? I'm so glad we are white. You feel it, right? And, the, and, the, and she says, and I thought, oh my God, do we say that? So let's imagine this child was Latina. And she comes home after celebrating, a day celebrating a Latina justice leader, and she says, Mom, I'm so glad we're Latinas. I don't think her mom's response is, oh my God, oh no, right? And very possibly, African-American children in that actual class did go home and say, you know what, Dad? I'm so glad we're black. To which I can imagine many a father saying, indeed, we are glad we're black. But the racial landscape is different for parents of white children. Because if you're committed to equity, and you value justice, but you live in an unjust society that also privileges you in that injustice, you face some very real conundrums. As in, I'm so glad we're white. Oh my God, do we say that? These conundrums impact white children's development from their earliest days. Now, of course, Race impacts all children's development, and all of our children need support to navigate a society that is not only very, very diverse, but is deeply unjust. At least our kids need that support if we want them to develop what we might think of as healthy racial identities, which is complicated when you're living in an unjust society. But what we also know is that parents of children of color tend to offer them that support. We know that parents of kids of color teach their children explicitly about the ways that race matters in their lives at rates two to five times higher than do white parents. In contrast, we also know that 75%, 75% of white families with, with kindergartners, quote, never or almost never talk about race with theirs. That's a lot of white silence in an unjust society. So this morning I want to talk about that white silence, a bit about what it looks like, why it's so dangerous, and then some counter responses that we need to begin to work on. Did any of you see the story, uh, it was last spring at this, by this point, about the two four-year-old boys who were best friends, one was black and one was white, I'm seeing some nods. So these two four-year-olds um, got matching haircuts because they wanted to fool their teacher so she couldn't tell them apart. <laughs> Did you see it? Yeah. It was really, it was an incredible story and it was a very sweet story. Um, and it was like wildfire throughout the media. And I think it was partly caught on like wildfire because it was so sweet. Their friendship was really lovely. Um, so I think that was part of the attraction of this story. But I also thought, you know, this story is so being consumed so, so vastly because it seemed to provide evidence that white silence is a good strategy. 
This story seems to it be evidence, like proof, that one, you can teach your kids not to see color. Not the case, no study bears that out. Two, that if we could do that, that that would be a good thing. In fact, the, white, the mother of the white boy told the media, I heard her say um, in an interview, that his, quote, inability to see difference was a parental success because, quote, I just taught him to love everyone the same. These are words that sound really lovely and nice. But this is actually not only a version of colorblindness, but I am increasingly thinking about colorblindness as better described as white silence. So here's another account from a different mom. And she said this to me, you know, I've always taught my kids to treat everyone with kindness. And my kids have friends of lots of different races and lots of different cultures. The thing is, they never cared what someone's race was until at school, they celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Martin Luther King Jr. Day vexes white families. And then my kids started talking about race all the time. They started saying things like, our friend Joe, he's black, right? And I don't want them to focus on people's race and put them in boxes. I mean, isn't that the opposite of what we're supposed to be trying to do? Now this mom values diversity. She thinks it's good. She likes it that her kids have, quote, lots, friends of lots of different races and cultures. But she's afraid that teaching her kids to notice race will backfire. And the thing is, it's true. It might. Because there are some real conundrums that come up. For example, what does it mean to even say that Joe is black? Does Joe identify that way? What are her kids assuming they know about Joe because he's black? And isn't making assumptions based on someone's race indeed what we learned not to do in this, during the civil rights movement? And obviously it's a problem if any children, but especially white children, are running around labeling other children, right? But even if the conundrums are real, this if this mother is tempted back into white silence, the backfire will be much worse than the potential challenges that emerge from trying to start to talk about race in these ways. If she succumbs to the temptation to go back to generic equality teachings and say things to her kids like, you know what, doesn't matter. Underneath our skin, we're all just human, or everybody's equal, that's the most important thing you need to know about race, serious consequences will result. We know this because there was a study of about 100 white families in 2006, and these white families told researchers, we want equality so we teach our kids everyone's equal. So this was not families thinking race doesn't matter, this is families saying we, we're, we, we teach equality by saying everybody's equal, everybody's equal, everybody's equal. And researchers studied these families, and at one point in the study they got in a room with the kids in these families, and they asked the kids in these everybody's equal families a very blunt question, and the question was this, do your parents like black people? 38% of white children being raised in everybody's equal families in this study said, I don't know. 14% of these kids said, nope, my parents don't like black people. It turns out that we're all equal is so abstract, kids literally have no idea what it means. No idea that they're supposed to connect 
that to actually valuing people, whatever their skin tone, hair texture, names, accents, and more frighteningly, everybody's equal teaching does nothing, zero, to counteract racism in white children. So there's a different kind of white silence I want to mention here just in passing um, that um, has to do with diversity because it is the case that in more and more contexts, appropriately, as an educator, I value, I, this is the move we should be making, I believe, we are in more and more contexts moving past the ideas as a society that we, quote, should not notice color. We're not doing it smoothly and it's still difficult, but we are, there are more spaces where we're using the language of valuing diversity, right? But even when we take a full dive into valuing diversity, white silence actually often quickly shows up. Because there's a fundamental difference. There's a fundamental difference between living in a diverse society and living in a white racial hierarchy. We live in a white racial hierarchy that is also very diverse. If we lived in a diverse society that was fair and equal, we could just say, let's value diversity, and we could all happily celebrate and go on our merry way. But we don't. The reality is we're not all just different. The reality is some children receive benefits and protections and access because of their difference that other children do not receive. So diversity gets us closer to talking about race in explicit ways, which we must do, but it doesn't engage racism. And the thing is, if we don't explicitly engage racism with our children, even young, we can't bring anti-racism into their vision of possibility for the world. They can only envision anti-racism if we teach them something about racism. So diversity, too, can actually be a form of white silence. So before I go much further, I want to say something very explicit. And I appreciated the hand raising to see who's in the room. Because the truth is, this is not what I'm talking about and thinking about and wrestling with in my own life here is not just a parenting problem. And that's why these conversations, community conversations, um, generating these is so critical. So many adults are involved when it comes to raising kids, coaches, teachers, community leaders who get seen by kids on TV, aunts and uncles, godparents, grandparents, faith leaders of all sorts. We are all raising kids as a society, whether or not we're parents. And the other thing is not just about white kids. Because what adults are or, not, or are not able to say to children about race and racism and anti-racism has everything to do with where we are as adults in our abilities. And most white Americans of my generation were raised with profound white silence. So we have a developmental challenge as well. So it's not just about white kids, it's about adults. And finally, it's not just about white kids. White silence impacts kids of color, and eventually teenagers, and 20-somethings, and then full-grown adults, colleagues, who come into contact with white kids, and eventually teenagers, and 20-somethings, and full-grown adults, and business colleagues, right? So this is a multiracial conversation. So. I want to give you two examples of how white silence manifests in the lives of kids. And then we'll talk about some of the strategies we need to bring into view for ourselves. And I'm going to take two passes at this. One of, one of these passes will, is an example about younger kids, and one has to do with teenagers. 
So we know that countless studies have shown this, that children, all children, internalize racist perceptions of themselves and of others by ages three and four. By five, our children recognize that different racial groups are treated differently and they understand something about racial social status. They also, at these young ages, they also know that they aren't supposed to talk about this in front of adults. So there was one study of preschoolers that found that over and over again, children would play with larger social messages about race, messages that most adults think go right over children's heads. And I'll just share one example that really stood out to me, and this is the researcher's language, not mine. She, said, she writes, there's a white girl, she's pulling two other girls, one white, one Asian, in a wagon. The wagon gets stuck, and the Asian girl jumps out to help, and the white girl responds, no, no, you can't pull this wagon. Only white Americans can pull this wagon. Renee has her hands on her hips and frowns at Ling Mei. The Asian girl tries again to lift the handle of the wagon, and Renee again insists that only white Americans are permitted to do this task. This is a four-year-old, a four-year-old, using white racial assumptions about who is American or not in her play, and it's really sophisticated. Now, about now, many of us in the room are probably feeling tempted to go, well, oh my gosh, what are they teaching that kid at home? Raise your hand, are you thinking that? <laughs> All right, I won't call you out. I, I, I used to think that until I became a mom. <laughs> we need to resist that temptation, because maybe, but maybe not. It may not at all be that that's what's going on at home. Because the thing is, that's not how this works. We tend to think about kid, children displaying racism as the product of a few rogue adult bad apples. We are much wiser to understand that racism is like smog. That's Beverly Daniel Tatum's notion, not mine. Tatum says, we've got to know that racism is like smog. We all breathe it in every day. So if the problem is smog, then white silence is just as likely to result in a four-year-old doing that wagon story as is a child hearing specific messages at home that, quote, only whites can be American. Because white silence is basically the equivalent of, of deciding we're not going to give our four-year-old a breathing mask and then sending them out into pollution. We wouldn't do that with any other thing in their lives, right? Nutrition, sugar, just go figure it out on your own, right? No guidance. And so our kids just breathe in racism, and that's not only negative perceptions, our white kids, not only negative perceptions of others, children of color, African-American kids, Latino kids, but also false notions of their own superiority by age four. And then they breathe it right back out into the world. Smog is that powerful. Um, I know that smog is real. I know it's real. My kids have two moms. Neither of us is particularly wed to stereotypical notions of gender. We're explicitly feminist and anti-sexist in our home. But I could tell you plenty of stories of my now seven and nine-year-olds making sexist statements, and I can tell you they didn't get them from me. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> my favorite nightmare was when my older, older child, H, my daughter, she was four. I'm also a religious studies scholar, by the way, and an ordained Baptist minister, and she proudly announced to me that she knew God was a boy because, well, God is a boy's name, obviously. <laughs> and then she went on to say, and anyway, 
God must be a boy because boys are better than girls. Four. Hashtag feminist religious scholar mom fail. <laughs> um, not exaggerating, this was the longest Facebook therapy session of my life. And we even put breathing masks on our kids. So this is how powerful smog can be. We gotta fight it every day. Another reason silence is so dangerous is our kids notice everything. Who's here in this space? Who's not here? Who's doing what work? Who's in charge? And in a deeply segregated and completely hierarchical society, that has an impact. No adult is needed for our kids to draw racist conclusions. They don't see any African-American people in leadership roles. Well, they think, well, black people must not be able to be leaders. They see Latino, Latina people primarily in service or custodial work. Oh, Latino people must not be able to be teachers or can't be doctors. Parents often don't even realize this is happening, but all we have to do is be silent. And the next thing we know, our kids will have created their own explanations to make sense out of the world, helped along by the culture that we're all living in and the smog we're all breathing in every day. Here's the um, teenager version, I think. Um, of some of the outcomes of white silence. There was a researcher, Mary Buckolds, who spent a year doing interviews in a multiracial high school, very diverse school, and the curriculum there was explicitly multicultural. Um, this was not a place where there was silence happening. They were trying really hard to talk about multiculturalism and diversity. And so she interviewed all these high schoolers of many different racial groups, and at the start of each interview, she asked students to tell her their age, their sex, gender, their grade, and their race. These seemed to me to be pretty straightforward demographic questions. But something really fascinating happened in her study. White students she found when she got to the last part of the question couldn't answer it. They did fine on the age, sex, grade, but they would start to squirm when she said, well, what's your race? And so some, she said, would give ironic answers, and she writes about one boy who, and I'm picturing this you know, awkward high schooler, abruptly takes on a British accent and says, I'm the whitest of the white boys. And she's like, okay, that's awkward. <laughs> you know, but she says he's kind of like mock celebrating his whiteness. And then other students, she writes, and I've seen this, I used to do um, anti-LGBT violence work in New York City public schools, and I saw this happen a lot, actually. Other students would get uncomfortable, or they'd play ignorant, and so they'd say things like, well, I'm white, I guess, or I don't know, I'm white. And as she pushes, Buckholz discovers two things. These students literally do not know literally do not know whether saying I'm white is the same thing as saying I'm racist. And they know they don't want to be that. The other thing is that they associate, and this is a narrative in the whole school that um, you know, students of color will say something about this, white students will say something about this, they all associate whiteness with, quote, cultural blandness and a lack of coolness. And sometimes it's kind of a joke, but sometimes it's actually clearly very painful for some of these youth. And this one little easy demographic question raises all of this stuff. So this is really important. Imagine this, you're at an age where uncool is about the worst thing you can be, right? Not that any of us in this room know anything about that. <laughs> you're being told every day that celebrating diversity is what this school values, right? But everybody there knows but probably no one's talking about it, that doesn't mean celebrating your diversity, your whiteness, like that doesn't work. 
So here's the formula. You cannot embrace your race. Everyone else gets to embrace theirs. And then you're supposed to enjoy embracing your peers, your much cooler peers, difference all the while. Like, what do we think is going to happen? Well, what happens is many of these white teenagers in this very multiracial, multi-committed, multicultural committed school are really, really resentful. But the thing is, they don't resent the adults in their lives who have failed to support them in navigating this problem, their parents, their teachers, people like me. They turn that resentment against the whole enterprise of diversity. And they turn all kinds of anger and frustration at their much cooler peers of color. So everyone's been set up to fail here in our failure to, to talk about anti-racism as part of the diversity project. And again, this is all on a good day in the United States. This study was way before 2016. So let's just think about that. We woke up at Drake University one day a few months ago and there were signs all over campus that said, it's okay to be white. And I'm sure you saw some of those close-up images of Charlottesville. Those were not older people. Those were young men and women. And there are folks in this country right now who know that there's this void in white youth. And those kids are ripe for the picking. So this is urgent. We have to be serious about this work right now. Our future depends on it. So we need to break silence. We need to break silence. And this is an investment in the racially just future and the health of all of our children, is figuring out how to break white silence and especially with white youth. What does that look like? I want to give us four different little snippets of what that might look like, and then we'll have time to talk. Because the truth is, we have inherited a legacy in which n very few of us have figured out in the white community what this looks like. This is just not a conversation as a society we have yet had. And so we've got to brainstorm together. But I have some sort of pointers, I think, that help start some of the directions we need to go. So first, we need to create race and justice conscious schemas in our children. Let me explain that by analogy. My children have always known, they've just known from birth, that families can have two moms. They, the moment they experienced a mom before they even had words for it, they knew you could have two. They probably thought you could have as many as you want, right? <laughs> you can. And so even though dominant culture says to them, two girls can't get married, or says to them, oh, you have to have a mom and a dad. When my kids hear those messages, especially now at ages seven and nine, they just experience those messages as strange. It's like the messages are the outliers because it never occurs to my kids that they are the outliers, right? So that's what a schema is. It's this underlying pattern that we use to make sense of the world. It makes up our deepest assumptions about what is normal, how things simply are. For my kids, multiple moms is just how it is. We have to make talking about race, naming injustice, naming racism to our children when they're very young, pointing it out when it's happening, and most importantly, the truth that people do act against racism all the time and are doing so as we speak, we have to make all of that part of white children's most basic schema in a way that is really quite similar to what many, many, many families of color already do with their kids, but specifically uh, framed toward the experience of being privileged in injustice. So there's lots of ways to do this. 
Early and often raised talk is absolutely essential, non-negotiable, even when our kids are little and don't even know what the heck we're talking about. So is teaching them explicitly about racism and anti-racism. The thing is that we need to most deeply understand is that white silence tries to wait until we have perfect words. It waits till our kids are ready, which is sort of like the equivalent of me going, oh wait, when my kids are 12, I'll explain to them that people can be gay. Like it does, because when they'll be old enough to get it. No, no, we just need to live our anti-racist values and talk about it all the time. And our kids will come along with us. All right, secondly, we need to understand something about racial scripts. Racial scripts are powerful. I have heard so many parents talk about putting their kids in diverse spaces because of their values on purpose, only to be disappointed when their own kids couldn't sustain friendships with kids of color. One of the things as a society we have got to come to terms with is that whatever our unique personalities, commitments, identities, our lives all unfold in a larger racial story. This story began long before we did, and it gets rewritten every day. So I have been handed a role. It doesn't matter that for 10 years I did anti-police brutality work in New York City in the 90s. It doesn't matter that I did that for 10 years. The day after another unarmed African-American man, woman, or child is killed by police in the United States, when I walk down the street in Des Moines, Iowa, if I encounter a black person who I do not know, I'm just another white person. Our national racial wounds, the violence against communities of color, and the trauma exists between us in the air. It mediates our relationships. It mediates all of our initial encounters and oftentimes prevents more than only a first encounter. We often don't even get past that or through it. We can never get past it. We often don't get deeper, right? We just bounce off each other. So racial scripts are operative in our kids' lives too, and we shouldn't expect them to be immune from this. We're setting them up if we think they're immune. So if my daughter, who is white, is only taught, she's only taught, police are safe. If you're in trouble, go find one. That's the only thing I ever tell her. Her relationship with her black cousin, who's 11, and who is necessarily being taught that police are complicated, is going to be impacted. They can cousin love each other all they want, which they do right now, but by the time they're 13, 14, 15, the depth of their friendship will erode. That's how scripts play out. Um, here's a funny story about racial scripts. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's a funny story. My nephew, T, who is also black, lives in Des Moines. He attends a very racially diverse school uh, in Iowa. And when he was about five, T is very uh, bold and funny, really smart, and he knows how to get a room laughing, and he always calls it like it is, so you never have to worry if there's, an un if there's a taboo in the room, he will name it right away. And so one day we were all having family dinner, and he was talking about having played dodgeball at school that day. He was five. And I don't know what had happened, but he announces to my sister and I, we're not supposed to say black kids against the white kids in dodgeball. <laughs> So we laughed, <laughs> and then we said, well, do you know why your teachers don't want you to do that? And he was like, nope. <laughs> they didn't tell us, they just said, don't do that. <laughs> and 
I suspect some of what was going on was a mix of, you know, a kind of developmental naivety. We, we divide girls and boys all the time. Why not black and white, right? Innocent naivety. But I also suspect there was an emerging kid awareness of racial scripts and tensions in that incident, whatever had happened. And I was really sad the teachers had not felt equipped to explore this with the kids because that silence leaves those kids more likely to succumb to racial scripts. Those children are going to square off as black and white in some other way. They've already been handed roles and they're beginning to be aware of that. And so I was trying to imagine in that day, that day that happened, any number of questions that might have interrupted the script actually, like, hey class, let's talk about this dodgeball thing. What an interesting idea to play black and white dodgeball. What made you think of that? Our kids would tell us all kinds of things if we asked them those questions. Or what about white kids and black kids who are friends? Would you let them play on each other's teams? Or, but how do we know who's black and white? What about kids who have families who are black and white? What about students who are Latino or they're from Vietnam? Do they get to play? And whose team are they gonna play on and why? Or, hmm, interesting. Where else have you seen people divided up and going against each other like that in Des Moines? Does it happen at our school? And do we want life to be like that? And if not, what can we do about it? So I want to be really, really clear, um, especially in a Twitter age where Twitter seems to be running our lives, that, um, so don't tweet this. I am, tweet this. I am not suggesting kids be allowed to play racially divided dodgeball. <laughs> Okay, that is not my point. Do not tweet that I said something like that. That is not what I believe, okay? You will end my career if you tweet that. <laughs> but this is a, a prime example of an opportunity for exploratory, critical race and justice dialogue in a multiracial setting. And we could create all kinds of new things for our children if adults would just stop underestimating our kids and frankly stop freaking out. Okay. Yes, let's stop freaking out. All right. Race is in our bodies. Here's another actual story from this actual mom and my actual white kid. I was at Chuck E. Cheese when my daughter was four. Bastion of hell that is Chuck E. Cheese. Um, I, t I like to tell people when I, when I, when I realized I was going to be a mom who was also a lesbian, which isn't always easy, I thought, man, at least I'll get a pass from Chuck E. Cheese. You don't. You still have to go to Chuck E. Cheese, even if you're a lesbian mom. <laughs> Doesn't feel fair to me. <laughs> but So we're at Chuck E. Cheese. So we'd been invited to a birthday party, and this was out outside of Des Moines, and it was a mostly white crowd at Chuck E. Cheese, but there was a very large group of young African-American children running around enjoying themselves immensely. Chuck E. Cheese was packed. And nothing was vocalized, but before long, I started to feel racial dynamics in the space. And I noticed white adults would give quick glances towards these young African-American children. The glasses, glances were not hostile, exactly, but they kind of had a vibe to them. And I noticed there was this very pronounced and, to me, unnatural kind of physical avoidance of these kids by the adults in the space. And this was especially strange because when space is really crowded and we're bumping into each other, one of the ways as humans we negotiate space is with eye contact, right? So five of us start to walk through that door back there and we go, oh, you know, we kind of like figure out who's gonna go first by using our eyes more than our um, mouths, right? 
and no one's making eye contact across racial lines in this space. Um, so it was really, it's like we were each in our own racial bubbles. It felt very, very pronounced and thick to me. So at one point, just as I stepped up to help my daughter with a game, a boy who I think was about nine, he stepped up to play. And consistent with what was going on in the larger space, he didn't look at either of us, um, but we were gonna have to figure out who was gonna play first. And this child happened to have these incredible designs shaved into his hair, and I just stopped him and I said, hey, I love your haircut. And for a moment, he looked really startled at me, and then he broke into a huge smile. And he was like, thanks! And then we all made eye contact and smiled, and I don't remember who played the game first, but it was all good. And then for the next hour, this is no exaggeration, for the next hour, this child and several of the kids he was with chased my daughter E around Chuck E. Cheese, and they kept coming up to her over and over, shoving their Chuck E. Cheese tickets into her hands. They gave her hundreds of tickets. Every time they would win a game, they would come running in to find her and hand her all of their tickets. And it was so sweet because my daughter was young and she's just beaming, not only in the excitement and joy of having hundreds of Chuck E. Cheese tickets, which is like a kid's dream, right? But also from the generosity of these much older kids. They were just showering her with love and it felt so good to her four-year-old self. So she walked away from Chuck E. Cheese with more tickets than she could have envisioned in her wildest dreams. That was the only interracial interaction I saw that entire afternoon at Chuck E. Cheese. And I don't know for sure what all was going on. I can only hypothesize, which is also very dangerous always. But my hypothesis is that racial divides, and in that case, the unexpected crossing of one had something to do with that interaction. For my part, I felt the relief of not staying in my white racial bubble, which usually feels like I want to suffocate. And whatever this child had anticipated as I started to speak, his smile and his exuberance afterwards suggested to me that something about our exchange was welcome in some way that mattered to him. I mean, really, what nine-year-old gives up their Chuck E. Cheese tickets? Not very many, right? And I share this because it illustrates that race is a body thing. Our bodies can create racial and interracial dynamics in collective spaces without words, the ways our bodies relate to other bodies, the way we do or don't do eye contact can increase or reduce racial tension, can increase or reduce racial connection and engagement across racial lines, and we've got to start tuning into this in deep ways. I wasn't thinking about any of that at Chuck E. Cheese that day. I hadn't even started working on this book. And there was no way I could have talked with my then four-year-old about it. Words could not have gotten at that with her. But even though it's not something we could have talked about really, she was actively internalizing the racial divides we were all embodying. That's what happens in our kids' lives. And then because of a nine-year-old's generosity, she experienced and participated in the disruption of those divides. And even though she has no conscious memory of that experience, I know that impacted how her body feels in multiracial spaces in a developmentally significant way. Now, I'm not overstating it. That's one moment. It will go away if she doesn't have experiences like that over and over and over again. But it's an important glimpse into what I want us to think about. All right, finally. We have to, have to. those of us with white children in our sphere of influence, we have to break our children's hearts. 
So a few months ago, actually it's been more than a few months ago now, but another mother and I were lamenting the nation's racial climate. And she nodded to her, towards her young white child, and she said, I'm just so grateful that she doesn't have to worry about any of this yet. And I totally get it. I long to protect my children as deeply as does any parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle. We are all living in difficult and violent times. And like all parents, I want my kids to have hope about the world and to think it's a world of possibilities. But I also need to understand, and I'm learning to live with this truth, that there's nothing innocent about white innocence, even at age three. In the face of racial injustice, in fact, keeping white kids innocent means bartering away their humanity. And if we do that, the actual lives of their peers, which are actually at stake in this system, become that much more jeopardized. So I came to understand this in a deeper way in fall of 2016, one of the most important things my daughter ever taught me. Fall of 2016, some of my Drake students were organizing a protest. And so I said to my kids, remember when we talked about the men who were killed by police? My students are coming together to protest to make clear they want this to stop. And I'm going, and I'll take you if you want to go. And both of them in unison said, yes, we want to go. Can we make signs? And I was like, sure, what are your signs going to say? <laughs> and together in the same moment, they said, black lives matter. So I've taken our kids to protest their whole lives. But by now, they're old enough to chant, to be engaged. And they both had some sense of what's going on in ways that they didn't really when they were younger. And so we went and they participated with vigor, and they spent nearly an hour physically present with black people and Latino people and other people of color and some white people who were standing together to say, no, basta, enough. And they saw young people there being brave and loud about the value of their own lives and about their right to be free. And they experienced adults and these same young people asking them about their green and red signs affirming them for making their voices heard. And all of this was really powerful for their development, specifically for their experience of actually having anti-racist agency. They were like, it matters that we're here. And that's how the story ended that day. But the middle part of the story is where I learned what it means to let my children have their hearts broken. So I walked downstairs where my kids were making their signs to tell them it was time to go. And when I came in the room, I caught my breath when I saw my older child H's signs, her sign, and it said this, Black Lives Matter, M-A-T-E-R. She had written this, they matter the same as white, stop killing them. And then below that, she'd written the names of people in her life who she loves, and her sign said it this way. People that are black, B-L-A-K, are T, her cousin, A, her cousin, Toby, her aunt. And as you can imagine, 
I didn't just catch my breath. I literally felt my heart shatter into a million pieces. But what I re-remembered from that devastating, gorgeous sign was that these are not days in which any of us dare live without a broken heart. Because if our hearts aren't broken right now, we are already lost because we've already lost a core part of our humanity. And what I'm holding on to even in these difficult days is another devastating but beautiful recognition, and that's this. At this point, my now nine-year-old is a whole, wonderful, smart, kind, beautiful, and very, very happy child. She doesn't wake up despairing. She doesn't wake up afraid. But she is also already, even in her not quite old enough to fully get it way, living with a broken heart. And more importantly to me, she knows it. My partner and I have never said to our kids, you know what, your aunt and your cousins are black and police violence put their, puts their lives in danger. We've never been explicit like that. But by fall of 2016, my elder daughter had hit an age where she had connected the dots for herself. She understands racism is a real thing with real consequences for real people. And she knows that some of her most beloveds are among those people. And she knew exactly what the stakes were in going to that protest. And her heart was, and is, still exposed enough that she risked naming that pain aloud in public. And the thing is, as devastating as that moment was, I want nothing more than for my kids' hearts to stay exposed, to risk them getting broken, because I want them to stay human. There's so much uncharted territory here, raising all of our children, and figuring out how we raise a different generation of white children. We have had few models for that. It's scary, it's hard, we don't even have the language we need yet. But here's what we need to know. The most truthful questions about raising white children aren't about how we exactly map or measure our attempts to teach them about justice. The most truthful questions aren't the practical ones about how we do it all just right the most truthful questions simply have to do with whether or not we will decide to be brave. Whether or not we'll be decide to be brave for the sake of all of our children. And so as much uncharted territory as it puts me in every single day, I'm convinced that this is the most life and future affirming choice we could make. Because it's the only way that white children remain human enough to recognize and fight for the humanity of their fellow humans who, whose lives are actually at stake today in the system we're living in. And so we need each other, and it will still be hard, but friends, our children's humanity and all of our children's lives are absolutely worth it. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Thanks. I appreciate you listening for so long. I would love to hear your questions, your pushback, your language about any of this. I think we have mics, yep. And they're, they're, stre they're, they're streaming, so we need you in the mic even if you think you're loud because folks need to be able to hear. 
Hello. Can you hear me? Those I can hear you. All right, perfect. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Yeah. Um, my question or observation or ask maybe is around your story of your child at Chuck E. Cheese mm. and the interaction with the black children there. It was a beautiful and painful story to listen to, but I think that's just the nature of all discussions around racial justice. Um, the fact that these black children gave your child these tickets, for me it was just a sign of how deprived they were of social acknowledgement and inclusion, that they felt so indebted to then have to pay for that, or not even pay for it, but just to show some level of appreciation for that. Now, being a Latina, I know that that's on me with my child to teach my child that you don't owe them anything. Right. That's just something that should be given to you, but because we're so deprived of it, that that's what comes across. And I think my ask of white parents is to, on the other side of that coin, is to ask, remind their children don't accept the payment for that either. Mm. Like you, that's how it should be. And accepting a payment kind of perpetuates that. Mm. that. That sense of, I don't deserve it, I don't get it on the daily, so that I need to pay for it mm. when I do receive that acknowledgement of my yeah. humanity. So yeah. that was just yeah. my observation, but thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, I want to thank you for that um, for that critique like criti that critique and that important suspicion and query. And I want to I mean I, I want to stew on that. And I want to say too that what I really appreciate about that is of any of the stories I share, in some ways that feels the most difficult. Um, I hadn't thought about it in quite that way, and I really appreciate that. And also, I, I also want to be careful, and, and, and white people do this a lot, of using people of color in our narratives in ways that are very caricatured. And I don't know what was going on for that child. And so, so I've struggled with that, but in part I have risked talking about it because of the body part, which is so hard to talk about. Um, but I, if, if, you know, if it's okay, I'd like to sort of think and stew on that critique as part of the way I share it. I mean, I just I appreciate that very much. So. Yeah, 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 thank you, yeah, thank you, I appreciate it. Hi. Hi, thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us today, I really enjoyed hearing them. Um, to piggyback off our last speaker, just to talk about the incident with the boy at Chuck E. Cheese, um, I think it really tapped into what you were saying about understanding all of racism and all the past that it has with it. Cause like you keep saying, it's smog that people breathe in, but with from at least what I'm seeing some of it, it's smog for white people, but it's fire for people of color because mm -hmm. we're dying from it. So what you're seeing is that boy was so used to being disciplined, even for playing, he's already in trouble. Yep. That's a big difference with, at least as an educator from what I'm seeing from white kids and kids of color, they're getting in trouble from small infractions, such as playing and having a good time when they're supposed to be. So how do we kill that divide? Because like, from one hand, it's like, okay, you guys are taking away, you know, it was very nice from this boy to give you the tickets and to be thankful for that. But on the other hand, from him, it's kind of like, oh, even when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm getting in trouble. But I'm grateful for someone who sees that, you know, like, I'm just being a kid and gives me that experience. So how do we change that into a positive impact for both you and our kids? 
Wow, that, I mean, that's a really great question. And it, it, is, it, was the, it was certainly the case for me, even though I wasn't um, thinking about it in the moment when I later started trying to reflect on what happened. I, I do think that it was um, possibly the case, I, and in the moment I thought it, that when I first started to speak to him to, to tell him I liked his haircut, which was just my, I wasn't sort of going, oh, how am I going to speak to this show? I was just, he had a great haircut. I, my, my, my feeling of his body language was that he had assumed I was going to correct him in some way. Um, and, I, and I feel, and, th and that, you know, kids of color are so rarely treated as kids, right? Hey, that's a great haircut. No, it's, your body shouldn't be doing this. You're being too loud. You're being, you know. Um, and so I, I was, I felt cognizant of all those dynamics. How do we, um, I mean, this is, a, you know, going on in the schools all the time. How do we, um, you know, interrupt the dial, the, the sort of, uh, treatment of children in those ways that not only impacts white kids, but more, you know, on fire, as you say, impacts kids of color. I think we have to keep, I mean, many educators of color are, you know, analyzing this, yelling about it, calling attention to it. We need more and more white teachers, white administrators, which our schools are full, even the most diverse schools, full of white folks in power to insist that white educators learn to start to talk about this but do that not by saying, we need to get this now for the first time, but pointing out and supporting the educators of color who've been yelling about this and analyzing it and writing about it for decades, right? Um, how that then, you know, how we change some of the perceptions and experiences of our kids then in the context of that, I think is really, I mean, it's a, it's a even thicker, harder problem because that won't happen until we change that experience for kids, right? So that it's not what they experience every day. And right now, as you say, we are on fire when it comes to this. So I, you know, I don't know all of the answers, but I do know that those of us who are in spaces who are embodied as white and have some power, we have got to get behind the people of color in our organizations, whether it's schools, community grassroots groups, higher ed, wherever we are, we've got to get behind the people of color in our spaces who are already and have long been calling attention to these issues but getting ignored, right? And Amplify those voices, right? Say we're going to have your back. Sit there in space when it gets uncomfortable and say, yes, I actually am learning to notice that in my own behavior, right? If we are white, we are not immune from any of these behaviors, and I don't care, I mean, I don't care how long we've been at the work of diversity or non-racism. We have to practice it every day and know we're going to continue to screw up and be humble and open enough to be willing to learn and come back to the table and sit and listen and talk and be uncomfortable. And I just, I think it's, it's a long work, and it's work communities of color have been at forever. Um, and they, you know, my, what I hear is much more critical anti-racist support from white communities in all the places that we have spheres of influence. I don't know who's next. Hi, thank you so much. As a mother of an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old boy, your explanation about the teenage boys explains my son exactly. Mm. Um, not just racism, but sexism now. Yeah. So uh, that explains it, and it gave me a lot to think about. Um, I scanned through his Instagram, and he has some kids who generate who like share a bunch of memes. And the memes make me feel, they don't, they're not, as a white person, I can't tell if they're really racist or just a little bit racist or, you know, it's, it's I mean, it's not blatant, but they're very stereotypical. Mm -hmm. They're very, and I don't have the language to say 
this isn't right and it's not funny. Yeah. And I don't know how to have that conversation with him without saying you can't look at it at all because then he's just going to bury it. Right. So I know it's a continuing conversation, but I don't know where to go to say to take him or to, I, don't, I just don't know how to counterbalance it with, without censoring it. And I just, mm -hmm. I just I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, thank you for risking saying that out loud in a public space. Um, at, at the end of the day, we can always go to, if we don't know exactly the right words, which I have many times in my life not had the right words, we can always go to, hey, I saw this picture you shared on Instagram. And I'm really, it makes me really uncomfortable, and I'm not even sure why it makes me uncomfortable, but could we try and figure out together why I'm feeling uncomfortable? And I think that kind of, like, I do think sometimes we get stuck because we're like, oh, I have to exactly explain to this kid why this is racist, which we do need to get better at doing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't learn and grow those skill sets. But if we've come out of white silence ourselves, it's gonna take a while before we're able to do that, right? But we can always go to, I feel really uncomfortable and I'm not really sure what to do with that, but I feel like this is something we need to talk about. And then, you know, it's also possible, depending on the kid, and I'm sure, since I don't have teenagers yet, I'm sure I'm much more idealistic about this than <laughs> it actually can go. But, you know, you know what, let's figure out together, let's do some reading together about why it might make me uncomfortable. Like, Give whatever image it is, like let's read about a little bit of the history of X. There's amazing, you know, now at the end, there's amazing, accessible, good writing on race that so many scholars and activists of color are doing, interpreting white culture for us and white behaviors that I think, you know, a 13 year old could easily read that would make a great parent kid dialogue. Um, so that might be what I would try. And I certainly, and then I would see sometimes when I don't know what to say, I might sort of bookmark it for the moment. And then say, all right, by tonight I'm going to come back to it and, 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 and I'll think about it over the course of, of the day and get to some resolution around, at least I'm going to say this and then ask a question about, could we talk about this more? And sometimes if we give ourselves a little, we, but we got to commit to come back to it. We can't let, let it linger, right? And sometimes, and then, I, and you know, you could then do some reading yourself to see if you can figure out what is it that's making you uncomfortable, then maybe offer that to him too. But always at least a question of, hey, let's, can we figure out together why this just is feeling edgy to me? Um, and then we can grow that dialogue too. Thank you. Yeah. Hi. Hi. So many good things are being said. I think I've changed what it is I want to say several times. <laughs> good morning. Um, good morning. I love the story that you told about your daughter in Chuck E. Cheese because as a mother who was often held hostage in Chuck E. Cheese growing up, you could see I that. I feel you. <laughs> Kids see that. Yep. But I, I'd like to offer perhaps a perspective that not so much was this child feeling finally validated as perhaps given the opportunity to drop his guard and show his loving heart. Yep. Because I think people of color and people who have experienced oppression and keep going have some of the biggest loving and forgiving hearts. And our children are no different. One of the things I know that as a mother of a child of color um, who is fairer skin and has longer hair um, and struggles or in order to avoid the struggle that many times um, those who are not black 
in order to, I guess, give themselves the okay to embrace her, try to tell her, well, it's not like you're really black, you know? And we all know that because the thought is we have this beautiful thick hair that grows towards the sun. I always say that's God's blessing on our manes. And then we have those of our children that span the whole spectrum of race because of you know all of our mixing, if you will. But when Kennedy was five and she was playing um, Cinderella with her white classmates and she was told by a white male who wasn't he wasn't even invited to be a Disney princess. <laughs> you know? But he told her that she could not be Cinderella because she was not white. And she came home and she's telling me her story. And one of the things that we do as mothers of color, or at least I've done, is to take the onus of ownership off of her and place it where it belongs. Well, that's his problem and not yours. But the truth of the matter was, media is powerful and there were no images that looked like her. And so I told her that it wasn't true, that these are characters and anyone could play Cinderella and anyone could be a Disney princess. And so as much as she may have felt some immediate solace, I wasn't convincing until 2009, that next year, and we walked into Target, and Tiana was in there. Mm. And she turned to me with these big eyes, and I can still see it, and she said, Mommy, you told the truth. Black girls can be Disney princesses because of Princess and the Frog. And it showed me then the power that media has. And so today, when you spoke of white silence, and you spoke so eloquently about the impact of absence in our white children's lives. They don't see black folks in positions of leadership, so they don't assume that leadership is for them. They don't see black women in positions of technology. And so when I say, but I'm a physicist and nuclear engineer, they're like, what? How'd you do that? You're that one extra. And I'm like, no, there's a whole lot right. before me. And so I so appreciate that white silence, um, when I talk to my colleagues who are white, especially the, the millennials, because they want to get this right, but you're right, they don't have the tools and we fail to give it to them. We focus on the pain of the people of color without recognizing that white kids are hurting too in this space. And so I love that, you know, for the sake of their humanity. And so if I had to say anything to that brave mother who said she saw those memes. Your son probably doesn't even really know. We, we use the word racist and racism, but we haven't defined it for them. They don't even understand the systemic stretch of it. Perhaps the easiest thing would be to do, if we took this and showed this to one of your friends, the one that this meme is supposed to look like, would you be willing to do that? Because mm. we need to do it from a place of the heart. It's our heart conditions that are hurting. How would this make him feel? And how would it make you feel to make him or her feel that way? And maybe that's where we need to go. So I've taken up time. I could do this all day. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. First, great talk. Um, so I have 
12 and a 15 year old and resonated with a lot of it. We started out with like, we moved to the diverse neighborhood and went to the diverse school. And I would say in the last two to three years, that dialogue has shifted more to what you're talking about. We recognize that our silence wasn't working um, and that we actually had to be part of the conversation. And some of that's the political landscape. Some of that's living in a Denver neighborhood where we've seen lots of our really great diverse neighbors leave mm. out of really some sad gentrification situations and that dialogue opening up in our neighborhood. So thank you, first of all. Um, my question is more how you take a, I have a 15 year old. He came home from Martin Luther King Day and said, how come I don't have a day? And he was excited, like he participated in the march and he's like, this was such a cool day. I learned so much history and it was amazing. It was stuff I didn't know about. And he was excited to talk about diversity because we talk a lot about it in racism and how we change that in our society. Um, he was excited to have that conversation, but actually ended the conversation with kind of feeling a little resentment. And I don't think he recognized that resentment. And I felt I was kind of freaking out about it until you talked about that. Um, and so how... How do you now, and maybe there's not a magic pill, but how do you take this 15-year-old and accelerate mm -hmm. his understanding? Because we're doing the dialogue and we're having the conversation, but I'm, part of me is like, is it too late? And, or how do you continue to foster that and grow it? And I'd love you, know, you or anybody in the room that has tips because yeah. we definitely didn't do that because as a society, we didn't do it 10 years ago. And I think, thankfully, we are doing it now, yeah. but I feel like I'm a little behind the eight ball. Yeah. We're, most, most white families are behind the eight ball. So it's, it's not too late. I have to believe it's not too late because I can't keep living in this world if it's yeah, too late. It's not feel. too late. Um, and I mean, a couple things I think about, I, I mean, I think like his question, why don't I have a date? What an amazing question sort of bringing to the surface this unspoken stuff, right? So what an opportunity. And we, yeah, we used it. It was great. So. That's awesome. I mean, one of the things that I like to think about is, um, and my kids are younger, but um, part of our, you know, as we're teaching our kids about history, I, I, and I, was, I got to go to Stedman. This was terrifying. I had, I was, I had two assemblies. So I actually talked to kids Friday morning in an assembly, which was awesome, and, but I was so scared, but it, went, it, was, it was great. They were so awesome. But um, I mean, I talk to kids all the time, but not in an assembly. Like that raises a lot of sort of PTSD stuff. But, but I, I, I was trying to figure out, okay, so what does this look like, you know, in, in terms of talking about history? And I realized, and we ended up, we talked about Harriet Tubman, and we talked about Frederick Douglass, and they were, you know, they, and, and then we talked a little bit about John Brown. And I don't, like with my kids, I want them to know, I want to lift up for them constantly as we talk about history. I want to both say to them, people of color have always led the freedom movements in this country. That's always been the case. And I want them to know the inside outs of all those detailed histories. And I want to say to them, every now and then white people have showed up and have really gotten it and have figured out how to follow that leadership and put their lives on the line for freedom. So I want my kids to know, oh, there is a legacy of white anti-racist activism in this country. It's, it's a sliver. And I'm not suggesting we overinflate for white youth, like, oh, we've just as much been on this, no, I'm not, we don't, we need to not lie to our children, but they need those mod, those images, right? They sure. need to see that you don't have to pretend you're black, right? You don't want to be appropriating African-American culture, Latino culture, but that, you know what, John Brown totally was, you know, I'm sure he had flaws, I'm not saying he was perfect, but he understood he needed to be in an alliance with Harriet Tubman. And she was the leader, right? Yeah. And so I think those kinds of conversations are ones that we can have, even as then we also say, and, you know, the reason that we don't have, uh, you, don't, you don't have a day is because mostly to this point, those of us who are white, <laughs> European-descended peoples, we haven't shown up. You right. get a day when you fight hard for justice. So maybe let's fight so hard 
Yeah. That we get a day in 50 years and we can say, look at all these amazing anti-racist, you know, people of European descent. But we have to, like, earn that, right? Yeah. And we haven't earned it yet. But, um, you know, so I just think that, and I think, you know, there's, there's ways I was, you know, I just think, again, those conversations where we just ask our youth, what's going on at school? How did that feel? Naming things, inviting them to name things and be honest is just, I think a lot of times they'll end up sort of showing us what kinds of paths they need. Um, and again, it's for me, I think, as much about just really being brave and honest and vulnerable um, as figuring it out. But, but every time they say something like that, it's like, oh, that's amazing information I just got. That's what we did. Like, this is yes, timing. yes, yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you. Thanks. Uh, I had some questions about the role of uh, music and cinema and art in, in this discussion with our kids. And the Princess and the Frog uh, was one of the ones that, when uh, my boys were young, was wonderful to be able to have that chance. And as they're getting older, we're looking for opportunities to, to talk about developing these ideas beyond the kind of Disney moment. And um, we've recently been reading the Boy in the Wooden Box about a kid with Schindler in the Holocaust. Mm. And then we watched um, Life is Beautiful, the movie with Benini, kind of trying to shelter his kid through the Holocaust without feeling or understanding what's going on. And that movie's kind of complicated. Mm. Um, but he, bought, he shelters him from the violence in a way that I felt was OK, that they're preteens and they can kind of they can dig it now. Um, so we grew up, my dad was a a singer and Quaker activist and listened to Harriet Tubman as kids, the songs. And, you know, the, the power of music and art to, to communicate um, uh, these ideas is it punches above its weight. It's really powerful. Yeah. And um, what we could have in a conversation can be accelerated so quickly with the right cinema, the right song, Bob Dylan or Billie Holiday or Marvin Gaye or, you know, these. The music can be so powerful in these things. Um, and my sister has a teenager who's taken w this music now to where he's like I, listening to rap music that sometimes she's trying to talk about what the sexism and violence that's in there and how to relate to it, you know? So these conversations with teenagers is, is complicated too. Um, so what do you think about the role of art, music, cinema, and, and a, as a, as a as an opportunity to teach, and what have you seen that, that, that you talk to kids about now as a good thing to look at to, to, to get into the conversation? Well, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, the role of art and music and cinema and all of that is, as you say, I think, potentially so very powerful. And so, and it's not only powerful for our kids, but those of us who are white and who are adults, I mean, I've, I've seen um, activists of color and scholars of color are talking about, you know, if we have this many hours in the week, right, and we're all really busy, how many hours in the week are we taking a deep dive into, you know, people of color media, listening to um, where in the media African-American peoples and immigrant communities and Latino communities are talking about the news, right? If I've got three hours in the week where I listen to the news, who am I listening to? And I think with our kids, it's, and what movies am I watching? And that as we do that in our own lives, we also didn't then, you know, expose our children to that. And I do think that it is sort of can really accelerate what happens. Um, and I can imagine, too, all the ways then, and, and we're sort of not there yet around issues of appropriation, but the complexities of some of that, um, you know, 
hip hop and rap that has, you know, the N-word in it or sexism in it, those, those kinds of conversations are complicated for African-American families too, right? And so recognizing that, that we just, we're all, all of us are living with these complexities with art and music, um, regardless of our racial identity, but it plays out in different ways depending on our racial identity. So, um, so I would just sort of say, like all of us, investing more and more time and energy in those sources. But I also want to say that this is where I think the um, the comment, the the um, talking about Tierra and like Doc McStuffins, and that we also I want this conversation to always for us especially as those of us who are white, to tether back to structural interventions. So for example, even as we are focusing on art and music and cinema, how that can impact our kids' lives, we also then need to go, okay, in my hours per week, when I'm putting time and energy into some sort of social transformation, where am I putting it? Am I putting it into, we need to support, like, um, organizations like In This Together Media, right? Syra Rao, who started that organization, is in Denver, actually. She's running for Congress right now. Um, and she, yes, yes, and she, like, they are, like, so they're taking the, they know art, music, books, it matters, and they know that lack of representation, um, it's, it's like, that's a structural justice dimension, and so those of us with political capital, racial capital, white, we need to put time, energy, resources into those organizations, people of color-led groups that are saying, and so we got to change media, we got to change the film industry, we got to, and we can't do all of it every place, but we need to tether these things back to how we support groups that are trying to transform the cultural landscape. And on that note, I would call out, um, I work on the Denver Music Strategy and the um, artists of Denver that are uh, applying for grants to do community music um, that I've been lucky to see and would call out. Uh, um, Cafe Cultura is working with um, uh, kids to, to use music and poetry as a way to express, and they're wonderful. And then uh, Molina Speaks is just came out with a cinema music um, experience. They're not releasing it in any way that's not live, but if you get a chance to see it, it's a really wonderful uh, experience I, I wouldn't hesitate to in involve my kids with. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. Good morning. Let Good me morning. just say it was so nice walking up the steps today to know that we were all coming into a room of people with open minds who want to make the world better. So that was awesome. So thanks so much for coming and thanks for speaking about something that really just kind of makes your heart pound and you get feverish talking about it because we all have our backgrounds and it's all part of us that we're sensitive to. I want to talk a little bit about our language and our conversation. I've got two beautifully uh, racially blended children and when my daughter was three or four, she would describe our skin as mommy has peach skin and daddy has brown skin. I loved it because I thought it was such a warmer conversation rather than just black and white. And being white, I just, you know, I know like sometimes older generations really screw up with their language and, you know, it's so on PC. But can you help um, everybody in this room kind of know where to start and what, like, where to go and what not to say, like, good, better, best with language. So, like, do people want to be described as black? Or can we describe people just by their skin color? Where do we start and how do we not screw up? Well, we're going to screw up. I say that with love. I've already, you know, we're going to screw up. And we need to not embrace that and say, so it doesn't matter, but embrace that and say that's part of the difficult, the hard. I, I think this is, I mean, well, obviously it's me talking, but this is my perspective. Yes, when kids are young 
um, talking about peach skin and you know, um, dark brown skin, light, like how our kids, that's, that is actually with especially young kids, I talk about this a little bit in the book, that is part of their sort of developing this recognition that we're, it's good to talk about difference and we want to nurture that. Um, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. We also do need to talk with our young kids um, and give them the language that people have said they want to be called, right? So like I had a conversation with my, one of my daughters when she was like five where she kept um, because we talked about difference all the time, constantly, in the ways that you were talking about, where she one day, when she was about five, she said something like, that person you were talking to, I was telling a story, and it was an African-American man I had had a conversation with, and I was talking about it at home, and she said, oh, was he a, did he, was he a dark-skinned person? And I said, oh, you know what? I said, you know, he did have dark skin, but he, he actually, he's an African-American person. Some African-American people have dark skin. Some African-American people have light skin. But he was African-American. That's what he um, calls himself and the African-American community calls themselves. And we, when we read these books, those are African-American people, right? So we have to do both. Like, we have to use the language. Race is not the same as just skin tone. Um, and so there is, we have to listen to what communities say, and it's not always the same, right? In any community, folks have different takes. So I have students who say, I'm, I identify as black. That's the, most that's, that's the way of identifying that's most uh, meaningful to me. And other students are like, no, I'm African-American, because the African connections of their own genealogy really matter to them. And you know, when in doubt, I ask. Right? We can always ask, and I want my kids to see that it's okay to respectfully ask. How do you identify? So we get it right. And so um, we do need to teach our children the language of race, the, 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 the language that communities of color have said diversely and accurately reflects this conversation we're happening, because it is more than skin tone, right? A light-skinned African-American person experiences race in a different way than a you know, olive-skinned, European-descended person, and so race has to come on board. And so we just need to um, work on giving our children the language that communities have said is the language right now. And it changes, it's dynamic. Like, um, you know, black, the black is beautiful is a word that emerges out of political struggle, right? And so we need, our, we need to give our kids that language too, I think. Thank you. Thank you very much for this. Um, particularly naming white silence, which I also call white quiet, and um, saying we are gonna keep screwing up and just saying a lot of what you're saying is so important, and I'm glad there's so many of us here. Um, I don't have any children. I've been a high school teacher, but my um, passion is around more and more willingness to talk about ugly history, and that's in my family, because my um, ancestors were big time and very successful slave traders. So mm -hmm. my question to you is, how do you have a story about talking with your kids or other kids about the history that is the foundation, the reason this goes on still, because it's huge, and thanks for mentioning John Brown, um, but. Uh, what I don't know, and as I said, I don't have my own kids, but to what degree can you talk about this history and at what age that makes them go, oh, I see. I mean, and with, with it you know, making sense and, and, and it plays a role in those broken hearts. But it's, the ugly history is huge. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so we, I think we start talking about it immediately but not in, um, so I'll sort of give you a quick example of sort of some scaffolding that happened with one of my, with my older daughter. When she was very little, she, I heard her one day singing One Little, Two Little, Three Little, that song. 
Um, which we tried to, anyway, it was on a Disney CD and we kept, we kept hitting skip and she still somehow got access to it. And I heard her singing it and I was really freaked out. And it was one of those moments that in the moment I was like, how am I gonna teach my four-year-old about the history of genocide and dispossession, right? <laughs> but I've gotta do that today. And I mean, but it was, I mean, it was really distressing, right? So, um, but I didn't, in the moment I waited and I just, that night I circled back and I said, hey, I wanna talk to you about a song I heard you singing earlier. And she said, okay. And so I told her, I said, you know, I don't want you to sing that song anymore. And she said, well, why? And I said, because, um, and I didn't talk about genocide. What I said was, I thought, oh, non-native peoples, we experience the, um, what we experience because of the history and genocide and dispossession is that native peoples aren't real in our minds. They're cartoons, right? Because very few of us, because of the history. So I said to her, I said, Native American people who that song is supposedly about have said, don't sing that song, it hurts. And Native American people, who you probably have actually never met a Native American person yet, and so you wouldn't have known that, they've said, this song is mean. And so they have said, don't sing this song. And I said, and so when someone says, don't do this, it hurts, we don't do it. And she was, she's awesome, so she was like, well, why would Disney make a song that people have said don't sing? And I was like, exactly. <laughs> You know, but that, so that's like the three-year-old. So then we spend time in southwestern Colorado in the summers. And so early when we started going there, we'd say, you know what, the Ute, this is the Ute people's land. And, and we would just sort of talk about that and sort of, you know, without being too, um, be, being, yes, truthful, but not, um, you know, getting into the, some of the specifics of the violence, but as, our, but as they age up, they start to figure it out, right? And so for me, a really um, connective moment there were, with the same child then was then when she was six and seven, when we were in Southwest Colorado one day as we were walking around, she said, um, did, did Europeans ever do anything good? <laughs> and I said, and I said, you know what? And, and, then, and I said, you know what? For the most part, if we're talking about this land base, no, like, like some individual European people have tried to, tried to stop what happened here, but Europeans did this and now Europeans are white US Americans. And then she said to me, are we European people? And I said, you know what, honey? I said, yeah, actually, those are our ancestors. And I said, but I want you to know this. I said, we have an ancestor who did enslave African people. And I said, we also have an ancestor who was an abolitionist, and he fought that guy, right? I mean, they didn't actually physically fight, but he was politically, because our people do go all the way back on one of my family's side. And I said, and so, yes, you and I, those are our ancestors, and be, because our ancestors, they did this, but they also fought against it, like, our job is to spend a lot of time, energy, and put hard work into changing now the way things are because of what our ancestors did. And she, I felt like she left that conversation humbled, sobered, but not like, oh gosh, I own, like this is all hopeless, but more like, yeah, okay, this is my job. This is our job together in the world is to, you know, to take responsibility for it. And so, you know, what that means to her yet mostly is stuff that shows up on the playground. But um, we'll talk about reparations very soon. So, you know, that, you know, so I just, we have to sort of build it so that and our, they'll become more and more ready. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your honesty and truth and for being brave. Thanks. And to piggyback on what you just said, I think um, it's just very important to share truth. Black people's pain, white people's shame. 
Um, there's a documentary about the DeWolf family, and yes. you might be familiar with Tracy, that. Yeah. It's a wonderful documentary, so and I suggest everyone watch it. And it's it's uh, comes from Catherine DeWolf. Her family was the third largest slave trading family in the U.S. And she did the documentary from their background. And it's absolutely wonderful. And I asked the culprit, if, uh, the documentary, I caught it on PBS, but they showed it at Iliff School of Theology. Mm -hmm. And I invited a white coworker. And she said, if my family owned slaves, I wouldn't want to know about it because I'd be too ashamed. Yeah. So owning that shame and being honest and truthful about it. Um, there were so many things you said that are just beautiful. I think opening our minds to truth, um, understanding, when you talked about the little boy, the first thing at Chuck E. Cheese, the first thing that came to my mind is that he was so validated by the dominant culture. You see, if a black person had said that to him, he would have appreciated it, but I doubt that he would have given them his tickets. Because white people are the dominant culture when you validate someone of color by saying whatever, something nice, that validation goes to the core because we have not been validated in this society. I'll give you a perfect example. I have a friend that's from Ghana. She got her PhD at DU. Her children are so disciplined and so educated. I've never seen children like that. Her daughter is in school for neuroscience. She's a freshman in college. She feels ugly. My friend Lydia and I were at dinner, and she's explaining this to me. Marilyn feels very ugly. She's 19. She's never been on a date. She doesn't have a boyfriend. We have a conversation. She said, Terrell, will you talk to my children? Because you can explain it to them in a way that I cannot. Sure. They come to my house when Marilyn comes home from college for spring break, it's just a little while ago. They come to my house, we have pizza, and we have a conversation. Her other two children are at CA, Colorado Academy, highly intelligent children. Uh, they come to my house, we sit in a circle, and we have this conversation. Marilyn says her white roommate uses the N-word, and it makes her very uncomfortable. I said, did you explain to her that this hurts you and it makes you uncomfortable? Yes, but she still uses it and says she forgets. The boy, the son, who's a sophomore, I think, he says white people think they can use the word because rappers use it. But Marilyn says the prettiest girls are mixed girls first, white girls second, and black girls are on the bottom. That is not my reality. I didn't grew up that way, I've never felt unattractive. So I, I can't relate to that, but her coming from Ghana, she was born in Ghana, came over here as a child. She has darker skin. She, this is a brilliant girl, a beautiful girl, yet she feels ugly. And this is because she is not validated in this society. If you look at TV, who's beautiful? Who's smart? Who's the doctor in the programs? Who's the criminal? All of this information is what teaches people who they are. Not in real life, but subconsciously, your perception is your reality. So subconsciously, you've been told when a child is born, from the moment they're born, who's taking out the trash in the hospital and who's delivering the baby? 
From the moment you're born, society tells you your place. So it's very important to have the hard conversations, to be truthful and honest, to own the shame and the pain, to own that and take responsibility for that. I um, am taking this class now called Muse Medicine, and one of the women in the group, it's all women, one of the women in the group, she said, my family were slave owners in Mississippi. And she teared up and she was very hurt. And, and from that I thought, well, white people need healing too because she's in a lot of pain because of that history. So I think it's, it's so important for us to have the courage to be honest, to tell the truth, read books, talk to people, watch documentaries, whatever it takes because it has to be done. And you're, to me, you're being very brave having this conversation, writing this book. You're brave to do that because I'm sure you will receive some negative backlash. Oh yeah. Yes. yeah right. Thank you. Yeah. So, so thank you for being brave because a lot of people aren't brave enough to stand up and tell the truth and be honest and own the truth and own their pain. When we, we watched that documentary, black people and white people a lot alike, and afterwards, we sat in a circle, and that was my first time having a conversation with white people about the truth. And, and we, I said, one of the most painful parts for me in that documentary was when a white slave owner gave his wife two little black children for her birthday, and she used them as a foot warmer. They lay down on the floor, and she put her feet on them. And for me, in that documentary, I stated, that's one of the most painful parts of it. But when we look at the history, I mean, the history is brutal. And it's, it's, it's not just brutal, it's sick and dysfunctional in every horrible thing you can think of. And some of it is very hard to digest because it's so sick. And when you realize that black people suffer greatly, but so do white people because you have to be a sick person to do that to someone else. So all of it is sick and dysfunctional, and, and it's carried in our DNA. Mm -hmm. So we have to own that, have conversations about it. Like I said, documentaries, books, whatever it takes, because the truth is the only thing that's gonna set us free. And then we have to heal. Just knowing the truth is one thing, but like you said, let your heart break. You gotta let the pain process through and let your heart break and cry or whatever it takes and heal and then come out of that and do what you can to help others. One more small story. I have a friend that went to South Africa, and she said that as a black American, they were all waiting in line at the bank, and they had a line with black people, a line with white people, and the white people, the line was moving, moving. The black people line was not moving. And another black woman, black American, said, this is absurd, we are Americans. And they took all the black Americans out of the line, took them in the back of the bank, and helped them because they were American. And she said what they did was, the host family, they went back and told that host family, what do you need? Because we're gonna use our privilege to help you. Mm. And they said, grandma needs to go to the hospital, we need this, they did all those things for that family because they used their American privilege to help that family. So as white people, use your privilege to change things. And it takes courage to do that, and you're doing that. So thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Is it <clears throat> the traces of the trade? 
the name of the film, Traces of the Trade, an incredible film. And I do think it speaks to, I mean, it's so much of what you said so powerfully. Like, we need a truth and a reparations process. I really do. I wasn't joking about that with my daughter. Like, we, we, have, we absolutely have this national sickness at the heart. And with the truth telling, we also need repair, which is a long process. But Traces of the Trade's really, really good film. I think I see a trend here that uh, parents of teenagers are kind of confused and it's it's difficult. But I have a 16-year-old daughter who is just coming into her own with her sexuality, her political activism, and the last 18 months, as you might imagine, has been sort of tumultuous for her. Can you speak to some uh, strategies about compassion fatigue? Are you seeing any confusion with your... Uh, college students, and there's so many important subjects that she wants to focus on, and we do too. Racism, for sure. Science, the March for Women. There's, it, you could go on for. There's something every weekend, and my concern is, uh, where can we focus energies as a family? How can I help her uh, direct her energies mm. and kind of narrow down what is important? Yeah. That's such an important question. We can't all do everything, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, and we have to um, commit and, and, and go hard, and we also have to, especially in the last few years, be really mindful around um, burnout. Like, we have to, this is a long-haul fight. Um, one of the things I tell my students is that I have tried really hard in my life, and sometimes I do it worse, and sometimes I do it better, in recognizing there's all these crises, and this was before 2016, there's all these crises. I care about most of them deeply. And I have got to discern, I mean, in, in many ways, most of them are interconnected, right? Um, but I've needed to discern in my life the, 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 this sort of set here relative to the relationships I'm in and the place I live and the, some of my skill set and I am just, I'm gonna commit, and I'm gonna commit hard, and I'm gonna pour time, energy, expertise, hours every week, locally, you know, in my citizen life, and then also, now I've, you know, I do it in my professional life too, but, and for me, it's these sets of things, and I'm gonna go to bed at night, and, and what, and I've said to my students, what's the thing that you go to bed at night worrying about? For me, that has emerged as, you know, white supremacy and racism, and I've been going hard on that for 20 years now, little bit more. But that then I go, oh my gosh, climate change, right? Thank goodness my colleague and friend Kevin O'Brien is really good at the climate change thing, because right now I'm here, right? But he's got, he's working on that, and they really do interconnect. But the other thing I want to say is that, so that's sort of a process thing I think we can support our young people in thinking through, but I really believe in this political moment, and this is me, I, you know, I might be wrong, but I really believe right now white supremacy is at the center of all of this. Oh, I agree. And I think our youth need to be supported in, and they're already in many contexts, I mean, certainly youth of color, but including some white youth leading on this front. Like, for example, you know, the, the very thing that might, and you know, spell the doom relative to climate change has to do with kind of white supremacist nationalism having been enabled to uh, claim, you know, it's always been powerful, but claim now really, really official power and then sort of galvanize this stuff. If things like the Women's March and the March for Our Lives and all these really powerful social movements, uh, Black Lives Matter, are going to, um, when I think about how many people are resisting, I'm like, we could win, right? We're the majority. Like, the majority of folks 
um, we could win, but we won't win if we repeat history by not getting the whiteness and white supremacy piece right. And like, so the Women's March, like I'm still watching and hoping and nurturing, like that, the Women's March, and many women of color have sort of led and, and hung in there, and others have said, you know what? Nope, there's too much whiteness in it. We've gotta get the whiteness piece right so that these movements that really intersect can, um, can sustain successful coalition. And I think the verdict's out on whether or not they will. And that's, I think, why this piece around race, for me, is at this, in many ways at the center of it. Because historically, over and over again, our multiracial, multi-classed um, justice movements have often fallen apart because whiteness and white people's socialization and the ways we manifest racism still, even when we're justice-identified people, have often sort of made them impossible to hold together. We've seen this over and over. So to me, I, wanna, I think the race piece is central for our youth, and it, it impacts climate change, right? Flint doesn't have clean water, and stand, at Standing Rock, Native peoples are having attack dogs set on them because of white, so, white colonial settler capitalism, right? And so we've got to get the white part right because that's sort of at the heart, I think, of all of it. Thank you. I agree. Uh, just a quick follow-up question. What I'm seeing with her is a sense of futility. Of, of futility? Futility. Mm. And at 16, that's not good. <laughs> I think there's certainly, like you say, some change on the horizon, but is there anything that you discuss with your students that keeps them invigorated? I mean, I know part of it is being 16 and not having a very big vision. I think it's actually really important, and it's not just for our youth, I think it's for uh, adults too right now, because it, it's easy for it to feel futile. I think, for me, it's been really important to be plugged in very, very locally, and so that I both experience the energy and the sort of mutuality of relationships in activist space. So like in Des Moines, there's just a, we've got a surge group that's involved with immigrant justice groups and involved with supporting African-American communities in Des Moines. And we're like, like I, I fight off futility in my own life by being energized by those relationships and taking on justice issues locally that we sometimes win, right? And because, even smaller victories, even if they're very, very local, helps us feed um, the larger ongoing um, resistance, right? And so I think really plugging in locally, not only online, not only in the big, big national level stuff, which we also need to be doing, but really locally with other people in our communities so that we, you know, it feels successful that we've moved the needle on some things at Drake. It helps me keep thinking this conversation's worth having because Drake, where I teach, is doing some different things on race. And, paying some reparative kind, doing some reparations type of programming. So I think plugging in locally is really important. It's, it's, it's always important, but it's really important right now so that we do keep going. Right, thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for that and for talking about intersectionality, which I think is so important. Um, one of the things that you said at, near the beginning of your talk was that it takes kind of all of us, we're a community raising kids. And I think as like a straight white ally, I feel like it's like incumbent on me to bring others into my community, but also like, I feel the pressure of white silence and I have a four and a half year old and even as a progressive, like yep. I do definitely fall into those, you know, we all look different and that's okay, but we're all the same on the inside, boom, done. You know, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can share some of your experiences of welcoming others into that community so that you feel supported in your parenting. Oh, like welcoming other adults into that community? Yeah. Um, you know, I think in my own life, 
sort of on the ground as a parent, as, as a, you know, someone who lives in Des Moines, it probably um, has, I, I think in my own life it has looked like, because I'm really um, engaged in justice movements in Des Moines with, with many different, you know, in a multiracial way with other adults, it sort of has ended up um, kind of, organic's not a good word, because we, like, very few things are organic. We have to, like, make decisions in a segregated society to, like, figure out how to get beyond stuff. But we, we have just found ourselves talking about our kids, right? Um, so, but I do think, um, you know, I do think we need to, as adults, you know, we can sort of grow our community by saying, as we're talking to folks at the school, like, you know, other parents, like, hey, what's the racial climate here at our school? And how is parents, um, you know, how is parents, is the PTA helping with that or not? And maybe we should organize and sort of infiltrate the PTA, you know, and, and get the PTA to be focusing on some different things around racial disparities as opposed to, you know, X, right, which happens in a lot of schools. The PTA, you know, in very diverse schools in Des Moines is very white, and they're not asking things like, why are all the teachers here white? When they could be, they have significant political capital. So. I think we just we need to just start talking to other parents and inviting them and and because we bump into them a lot if we are parenting and um, and it it takes as much courage and risk to do that I think as our you know because there's because the silence is between us too but sometimes when we break it we find out oh my gosh other parents are actually dying to talk about some of this stuff and so I think again just being brave and just trying to look for opportunities create opportunities especially relative to spaces that our kids are also spending time in where it's a very important, you know, it's a conversation we have all the time, we just don't often necessarily bring race into it. And so let's just, let's do that. Like, um, you know, so I don't know, that's not maybe a very helpful answer. No, but. that was, thank you. Hi, um, Hi, one more question, comment. Yeah. So this one is around educating white children as an educator. Um, so last year I had a project in South Carolina where I'm from helping kids um, at a local recreation center after school of homework and stuff. And we were really successful. All the kids made honor roll that year. And we taught black history every day because our class is majority black. We had two white kids and that was it. We started off with four more white kids, but their mom pulled them out, which I had no problem with. Um, yeah, I don't, if you don't want to hear it, it's not for you. Yep. And we also taught them about other history. I think women's history um, is extremely important. It's something we don't talk about, which is why we have so much misogyny in our society. But one of the ugly things I noticed was by the end of the school year, um, I had white kids, our two little white boys kept saying, I'm not white, I'm not white, I'm Puerto Rican. Like, I don't know where it came from. That was just their thing, I'm Puerto Rican. And I started to wonder, was it the fact that we were teaching them black history, which does involve teaching, black history is American history. Mm -hmm. So how many people learned about slavery when they were kids? By raise of hands. How many people learned about the slave master? Right, exactly. that's the difference. Right. So we were teaching them about that, but while teaching them about that, I don't wanna you know, take away from them that you know, there is some beauty in being white also. Like they should be able to see the beauty in themselves just like our black kids should be able to. So where is the tie that we can bring everybody in together and really be inclusive? Because it's hard even as an educator of color to make sure that everybody feels you know, like, beautiful about who they are. So that's my question. Thanks. So I kind of think, I think two things. I, I, I love that question and I think one is um, as we're talking about history, I love and it's, it's important to also, and we don't do that, talk about who, who was the enslaver, right? 
And, but and, I think one response I would say is, I do think we need to then introduce some of those like John Brown types, right? Because I think that in and of itself um, helps diverse kids see, you know, kids of all different racial groups, okay, yeah, it's almost always, it's, it's been majority of people color led freedom movements always, and there have almost always been some white person or two, right? And so I think for those kids who themselves may be white or Puerto Rican or biracial, and, but I, you know, that just seeing that can help a lot um, and, and is important to do. I also think that, um, and there's some studies that have borne this out a little bit, um, that we don't actually, we, we have to support our classrooms and our student bodies in navigating racial tension if that t starts to show up because white kids are feeling like, oh, I'm only always the bad guy. Like we have to, which is why we need those anti-racist models and to just have that conversation. But in terms of their development, this is gonna sound really counterintuitive, especially if you're a parent. We actually, there's a number of studies that suggest we shouldn't be worrying too much about making white kids feel bad because they get so much false messages about their goodness that it's actually kind of critically important for them. Now, we don't want to induce shame, right? Which is why they need those models. They need to hear, say, yeah, white people can do racial justice too, right? Here's some examples. So we don't want to induce, introduce shame, and there's a tricky line, and we don't want to cause racial tension where then they have no way to enter the diversity conversation. And so we need to talk about anti-racism with them. We need to give them those models. But we also actually need to, um, it's, it's good for them to feel a bit, uh, like white guilt is a really big problem. And my goal as a parent is to get my kids into white guilt and beyond it as young as possible. Because adults, white adults are running around with white guilt and we're stuck. White guilt has to happen. It's a developmental need. If you believe in equity and you live in this kind of system and you're white, you're gonna hit white guilt. So in my mind, I'm like, I need my four-year-old to experience white guilt so I can support her out of it and beyond it. And I don't want her doing it when she's 20. I want her to be well past that point. And so, um, like, there was, a, I'll, I'll just tell this one thing and I'll stop, but there, there was a really, in a study, I think it was a black researcher did, of teaching kids about Jackie Robinson. And they found that with the kids that they only taught about Jackie Robinson, um, and didn't talk about the, the perpetrators against Jackie Robinson, those kids, those white kids actually came away with more negative stereotypes about black people because they were like, well, Jackie Robinson, he was great, but why did it take black people so long? Mm -hmm. And then they did another group, right? It was a very controlled study. They taught the kids about Jackie Robinson and all the white folks who had participated in setting the laws, boxing him out from baseball, taught them all of that. And they found that those kids, they came out feeling a little bit bad about being white, but with much, much more positive perceptions of black people. And that was actually really important. And so I, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying make white kids feel bad. Like, I don't want that. That's why I told my daughter, we have abolitionists and we do have folks that enslave black people. And so this is our work and it's very life-giving justice work, right? Um, but the, I don't know, I mean, developmentally, white kids actually a little bit of chastisement around, not, not shame, but, but hey, is actually really important for them because otherwise they get this really inflated sense of their superiority. Um, okay. <laughs> You've been waiting a long time. Um, yeah. Well, I just wanted to, I guess, add a comment to the conversation because I feel like we're having a good conversation and folks have kind of already brought up what I'm like echoing, I guess. Um, but I do think that it's like really important to almost 
like you say break the hearts, but I feel like rip the Band-Aid off, right? Because this is like an open wound and the Band-Aid's not working. Um, and I feel like as white folks, you all um, do have the privilege to kind of be like, well, when are we gonna discuss like racism in these systems and how it affects other folks? But like as a person um, of color, a black woman, um, we do, I didn't have that, right? Like when I was a kid, it was very clear to me like what slavery was, what, what that meant for me, what systems meant for me. Like at a very young age, it was very apparent um, what the police meant in my community, Th those type of conversations. And I feel like um, it does good to just go ahead and rip that Band-Aid off uh, for white children as well because I feel like even your example of your daughter in her Black Lives Matter sign, right? Like, there are a lot of parents that say, you know, well, this Black Lives Matter, this movement's happening, the police are kind of like hurting these people, but you know, we don't really go into why or just say like they're hurting folks, but it's like they're not hurt, they're killing people, right? And so like, let's say they're killing people because kids know what that means and that really will resonate. And that's why on her sign, it wasn't, it didn't say stop hurting people, right? right? It said stop killing people. And when you know the impact as a child, I feel like, you, it resonates more with you. It's like, all right, well, we all know that killing people is bad, right? Like, right. I, I got, you know, you get taught that from a very young age, no matter who you are. Um, and so to know, I feel like, you know, obviously I'm not your daughter, but I feel like for her to know, like, okay, they're killing these people, that was a bigger impact than just they're hurting these people, they're pulling these people over or, um, so I don't know, but I do think that it's important to rip the Band-Aid off um, and just to be honest and then to also combat that with like, this is what's happening, this is why, these are what these systems are meant to do, but that doesn't mean that we have to to play into this. That doesn't mean that we have to perpetuate the system and like following up with that, um, which is also like a sense of empowerment, right? Um, where it's like, well, I don't have to just sit and allow this to happen just because I'm white and it might not affect me. I can also have some agency um, in, in combating this system is very important too, so. Thanks. We have a time for the last two questions okay. and then we wanna wrap things up. Um, I think I mostly just wanted to, I, it's really important that everyone is here and talking about this because it's a difficult subject. Um, there's a lot of conversation about how to have conversation, which I think is very important and necessary. But fatigue is like an, an incredibly crucial point to bring up in both like yourselves and the kids that you're working with. Um, it's exhausting to do the work. It's exhausting to figure out the words to say. It's exhausting to break each other's hearts, to break your own hearts, to rehabilitate your habits, to like reconstruct the way that you operate in the world and the way that you view the world through rose-colored lenses, through colored blind lenses. And I think that it's um, like a, a way to kind of pull in like you cannot pour from an empty vessel and so in the event that you are fatigued that you aren't like that you do just want to respond with we're all equal on the inside because you don't exactly have the words for it like it can go back to something as simple as integrating um, how the media affects like kids if and affects you if you're being affected um, by like Hollywood blockbusters you have a consumer um, like consumer power to 
Google or like to search really quickly what are some awesome role models with people of color at the top of them and then like passively have a movie night with your kids where you're watching like my mother was uh, like came out as a lesbian when I was six years old and we watched in and out and we watched Will and Grace and we watched all these things that were very much like casual to us and she didn't even talk to us about it she was very silent but through what she was exposing us to, we were able to have discussions despite her silence. And I think that that's a really like easy way to be constantly active in your life and in your children's lives is just by exposure. So like consumer power. Nice. <laughs> Great, thanks. Okay guys, I will wrap this up very quickly. <laughs> My name is Sabria and I am from Maryland. I moved to this great city a couple months ago in December. Um, I want to proudly say I've never felt blacker. Um, I grew up in a predominantly white area and um, I had to go to DC to see black people in a positive light. Um, I moved to Colorado to also uplift other black communities that are here, the ones that are still remaining. Um, I'm a coalition builder, that's what I did back home. I am now on the board of Colorado Black Women for Political Action. Um, I want to see this conversation move forward. I want more allies and I'm hoping that you all come to me. I have a couple flyers with Colorado Black Women Political Action. Um, I would like to carry on this conversation, create more bridges to ending this culture and creating a new one. So please come see me. Thank you. Thank you, what a great way to end. Thank you. Thank you all so much.